0: Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the sixteenth of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at the buglepodcast.com. That that bit's important.
1: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: Oh, hi there. Just enjoying the heat. I don't know if you've noticed, it seems a lot hotter today. normal I don't know if anyone's mentioned the heat Uh, talking of heat I have some hot hot exciting news Um, I'm very very excited to announce that I'm expecting thank you to deliver four podcasts at the Edinburgh Fringe I'm bringing Tiny Revolutions my show with Lush to the Gilded Balloon on the 12th and 13th of august so watch this space for updates guest announcements ticket links etc see you there welcome to tiny revolutions with me tiff stevenson the podcast that asks if comedy can be a force for social change Please welcome to tiny revolutions tawny newsome yay i joined you in the applause yeah i think we should <laughs> applaud ourselves more thank you i will from now on it's part of our daily routine yeah just
1: look wake up look in the mirror start clapping
2: yeah as comedians, we are that desperate for validation that, the, yeah.
1: We have the, to self-start it.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's nice having a job where people just do that as you come on stage.
1: Yeah, and then you, like, constantly question all day, like, do they mean it? Are you? Are they really just clapping for the other people on stage next to me? Yeah. Yeah, You you know, you can't I, appreciate anything.
2: I don't have that because I'm the only one, but you are part of a team, which is a great way to lead us into how you got into comedy, just to give you some context for some of our UK listeners, because there will be a bunch who know you, but those who don't, uh, how did you get started in comedy?
1: Sure. Um, I was a member of the Second City in Chicago, which is kind of like our birth of improv. Um, It has since spun out into lots of different organizations that excel at it. But Second City, for better or worse, was the first. Um, They started in 1959 um, in Chicago, and I joined them a little ways after that in like 2010 and joined their touring company there. I was living in Chicago just as an actress. Like I always, when people talk about improv, I'm like, do you have to pledge allegiance
2: to you? Or it's <laughs> almost like, yeah, I always hear people say, and this is when the company started and this is who's come through. Is it cult-like or not cult-like? Oh, a hundred percent. It's yeah. cult-like.
1: Yeah. It's definitely like, it's the closest thing I ever had to like a sorority. Does the, the UK, does your uni system do the Greek life like we do? We're um, obsessed with it.
2: Oh, the sorority and the fr- yeah. fraternities. Just the creepy.
1: Frat bros. Skull and crossbones organizations that yeah. don't get you any college credit, but give you these false friendships. We have, we have houses.
2: It's so British. So a bit like in Harry Potter, you know, there's Ravenclaw and sure. Hufflepuff and, you know, whatever. Grumble, grumble dumps. We, grumble dumps. So yes, yeah, so we have houses. So people get separated into team houses, but They're mainly for sports and things. They're not really a social group. I mean, I'm sure there's sort of groups, but that that thing in America where they sort of haze, haze you in those kind of ways. The first experience I had of hazing was kind of when I got into comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Because people do that in the clubs. And so I always sort of envied the improv performers because I felt like uh, you came through that system, but you also had like a really good support network and friends and people willing each other to do well.
1: If you, yeah, if you were lucky, but the thing you're talking about happened to us just as much and it was almost, you know, you have a team of six, right? Is there one woman or lucky days are there two, but you always get relegated to playing the wife, the mom, the, the, the nagging coworker. And it's because men are quicker to make decisions on stage just because societal breeding has taught them that their decision is most likely right. right. (laughs) So they're allowed to jump forward. Whereas women go how can I make the safest, smartest choice? Oh, a man has just stepped in front of me and started a scene. I guess I'll join and be his mean sister. Like there's kind of no, uh, society we're taught to like hang back a little bit. So in improv that happens naturally. And then these roles get entrenched where we end up getting play. you know, we end up playing people on the back line until we start taking ownership for ourselves. But as a new young improv student, it's so much harder for women And so then you get guys who are just like, oh, well, the women, they aren't quick. They aren't funny. Or we can't find more women for our team because they're not funny. It's like, no, it's not that we're not funny. It's that we're taking a minute to think about how to be funny.
2: Yes. And you're fast. And and, and sometimes, yeah, it is that entrenched belief that as a a man that you're right, particularly or specifically a white man of a certain age and a certain class Mm -hmm. has had that reinforced their entire life. That Mm -hmm. yes, we're seeing this. Grayson Perry describes it as the default male. Yeah the default white male that we see whenever we picture a man not us because we're women but you know like that is what's seen to be the default when actually it's the minority (laughs) it's like such a tiny minority but they weirdly have the biggest voice Um, and that's really interesting because I believe and what this sort of podcast is about a bit I guess is comedy is a force for social change and whenever I'm talking to women one of the first things I say is that even us doing it or being in comedy is sort of a political act in itself just by existing and then you have an extra kind of political thing behind it as well as a person of colour now I say person of colour because in the UK and I would like to ask you about this in the UK we say Bain which is British Asian minority ethnic, I believe. Wow. And in, in America, they would say person of color, or I see POC and I go, can I use those terms? And then I saw a really great article. I think it was like in the New Yorker from a woman who was like, I don't want to be called a person of color. I find that really offensive. <laughs> and went into explaining how she did. So when those terms kind of changed, that is that something that you... Are okay with being called?
1: Yes, I I maybe wrongly assumed that it was a safe catch-all. Yes, um, maybe I need to read her article. I'm always interested to hear people's perspective. Um, is it because she wanted the specificity of her actual ethnicity? I think ethnicity? so. I
2: think so. Maybe she wanted to be like. I think it was like I want to be called a black woman because I'm a black woman. Yeah, and think- so therefore person of color. And I kind of thought that I was like, yeah, I kind of sort of see the point of that. I guess what you're saying with that is not white. Yeah. So there's a kind of othering there, which I can kind of understand. Sure. And you know. it's,
1: it's claiming white as neutral again, like what you mentioned, yeah, like default. And I bet if you present purely as black, which I don't always, cause I'm mixed. And so sometimes people don't know what I'm mixed with. It's, it's just white, but sometimes people think it's something more exciting and they ask if I'm Mexican or if I'm Asian or something. Um, so I like person of color. I like black. I like all of it, but I bet if you present as pretty strongly, like one thing, you want to be recognized as that one thing. I yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, cause in America, I feel like, I feel like the scenes are very different to how they are here. This is what mm-hmm. I've sort of noticed from time spent in New York and time spent in LA to time spent in the UK is that there's very distinct s- scenes. And actually, the black comedy scene, I found to be one of the most supportive mm. and loving. It was really, really interesting. Because I think in New York, if you do a show, you, everyone's very, people can
1: be quite like into their own thing. I could see that. I've never been a stand-up, but I I, I believe that 100%. It's just, um, we know it's just that much harder. And I'm sure if you saw a, a ticket of only black women, I'm sure yeah. you would have seen even more. So we know like even being here... I'll get texts from, and I'll get, when I get a job, I'll get texts from other actors who are my friends, but overwhelmingly I get texts from black and people of color, comedians and improvisers who say like, I can't believe you don't know how hard it is to like smash this world as a person of color. So like, congrats, like the, the joys are common. They're, they're all of ours. We share them.
2: Right. So by elevate, when one person is elevated, everyone is elevated.
1: Yes. It brings more, me being on television in a show that doesn't have a ton of brown people makes it so that next shows can envision their all white shows with maybe one brown person it's called leaving the door open a little you know
2: well also that means like uh young girls who are watching you if you can see it you can be it that's always the thing isn't it of kind of with within stand-up comedy or with representation and why it's so important is if you can see it you can be it and I didn't really realize that women did comedy stand-up comedy in that way until I saw Joan Rivers for the first time and I was like oh women do stand-up comedy before that I'd seen Victoria Wood who was uh, a, a British comedian very beloved British comedian who did almost like bits of character stuff and she did musical stuff yeah and a lot of it was acting little character work and that was the first time that I was like oh you can be funny within that so that was a breakthrough moment seeing her but then actually seeing Joan because I'd watched like Eddie Murphy when I was younger and I loved him Um, But I never went, oh, I can do that. And so it wasn't until I saw Joan, I went, oh, there's a woman doing that thing. I can do that thing. Yeah. So if a young girl sees you and goes, oh, there's a person of color doing stand-up comedy, I can do... Oh, sorry, or doing improv,
1: yeah, you know, I comedy. can do it, yeah. I can do comedy, I can be there, yeah. there's room for me. I think it also tells them that maybe, like, maybe even if you didn't want to be a stand-up, you still saw women being funny, and that gave you permission to be funny, even if you'd become an accountant or a banker, you you get this permission of, like, oh, women can be, like, outspoken and speak their mind and be hilarious and witty, whereas, yeah, even if you didn't want to do it as a profession. It's also why I'm really specific about how I wear my hair anymore because I spent, I mean, all of my youth and into my 20s wearing weave and wearing straight hair because that was that was what we all did in the 90s and the early 2000s. We straightened the shit out of our hair. Sorry, can I swear? Yeah. Okay, good. I figured I'm in England, but... (laughs) Yeah, we swear is a greeting here. This is a nice building, so it seemed I got fooled a little bit. Um, But yeah, so now when I'm on screen, and I have nothing against the women, the black women who do wear weave and straight hair, but we have enough of that. We have enough representation of women wearing, you know, Indian people's hair stapled to their head. So if they want to do it, they look beautiful, great. But I want to make sure that all the little girls like me who were just Just fought their hair and just burned their hair and were so depressed because they didn't have straight hair. I want them to be able to see me in like braids and curls and all the styles that are more natural to us just to like spare them some heartache, frankly.
2: Because I feel that that's a massively political thing. I was thinking about this recently because I (laughs) grew out my armpit hair. Well, I have grown it out, it's grown now. And I've done this before in my life, but I was at my sister's a couple of weekends ago and she was like, oh my god that's disgusting <laughs> and occasionally if I have like bikini line of worship she'll should, should be like your old Holborn's hanging out which is how she refers to pubes which is like rolling tobacco
1: oh so my I god so I don't know whether
2: I keep this in that's such a <laughs> disgusting way of describing it but she's like offended by it and I was like don't be offended by hair don't be offended and so my partner's not he was like I like it it's cool maybe dye it so generally as a as a thing I think hair is so massively political whether it's you know whether it's choosing to grow your armpit hair whether you cover your hair Mm -hmm. whether your religion states you should cover your hair or whether you make that as a choice whether you don't whether you straighten it you, you mentioned weaves. I mean, I've, I've got really, really, really fine hair. I call it fairy hair. And I have my whole life, my main mission has been to make it look thicker mm. and wear clip-ins. But then once you start looking into the political, not the political, the ethical stance behind any kind of hair
1: extensions and how they're collected and stuff. Mm-hmm women we always feel bad no matter what but yeah we're made to feel bad about everything and we should um <laughs> a lot of our industry the things that are sold to us are just ripped from people uh, and their labor but there are companies now no one in los angeles is wearing their real hair no one no right. one you look at on television that's not their hair yeah. if it's a man it's a piece that's dyed if it's a woman they're wearing 10 pounds of extensions and it starts to be a thing where like i i when i wear them i try to wear i go okay it has to match my hair it has to be what i would wear but you're just trying to fill it out yes i don't want to change i don't want to fundamentally change the nature of it i used to wear straight weave for years and i just i can't do it anymore for me it feels very false um i don't begrudge women that wear it but
2: i have a friend who's done that as well actually my friend judy she had um she's an actress and she had uh weaves for years and years and years, mm-hmm. and then now she it, she's sort of got her natural hair, and she was just like also it was destroying my hair, mm. putting chemicals in it like and, oh yeah you to know relax. like to 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 relax it and Also, there's something about it that... There is a thing of, like, certain hairstyles look very done. You always look like you've tried. Mm -hmm. And I think she likes the thing of kind of going, I have tried and I've styled my hair, but there's something about a really kind of, like, straight bob that's, like, Mm. shiny, 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 to with an inch of its light, which is not the hair I have, you know. When you see that, you go, that's like a a businesswoman. Yeah. (laughs) like That's a really done... It's a professional look. So she was like, I prefer this kind of... But also, I just... I just need it my scout needs it and that and and it's who I am it's what my hair is yeah so that's quite a political thing that you've chosen to sort of actively without judgment yeah. which is the best way to do it I think
1: yeah because I know there will be a time when I'm playing a role and someone's like well this like uptight business lady would have super straight hair and it's like of course that makes sense for the character but when I'm playing things that are kind of closer to myself or when the production doesn't have a strong opinion about it. I'm uh, on a new show that I'm starting soon and I've just been on the phone yesterday with the hair department who's great. We're all based in, everyone's going to be based in Atlanta, which is such a like, it's such a black city, which is so great, especially coming from LA. So there's black hairstylists galore and they can kind of do anything and so we were talking like okay do i want to wear like braids or like kind of a lock look or do i want to wear curls and it's nice to be able to give it be given that choice because even if i'd been in the business 10 years ago or 15 years ago i don't think i would have been allowed to i know i wouldn't i know women that are told that <laughs> they couldn't ever be on camera without super straight hair
2: i have you ever have you ever read lisa nichols Is it lisa nichols she's like a she she does like inspirational and like positive thinking. She's often on Oprah's, you know, uh, yeah. Super Soul Sundays and stuff. And she did a a great sort of speech. It might even be in The Secret. I've watched The Secret. Hey, um, we all need <laughs> stuff sometimes. Um, where she talks about seeing herself. She was like my icons growing up, and she grew up in the seventies were like the Charlie's Angels and you know, so it's pictures yeah. of Farah Fawcett and kind of going, I didn't believe I was beautiful because those weren't the images that I was being shown. And I just forget because of course I was, sh- as a white person, I was shown those images as a white woman. I did see those mm-hmm. images of, of those women going, oh, you know, but if you're a young black girl and you're not, you're saying, do I, A, not exist or am I B, not beautiful? Yeah, And so that's why I think, that's so powerful what you're doing by making a little statement of going when it's my
1: choice and when I can yeah this is what I'm going to do also selfishly straight hair just puts like 10 years on me so right okay (laughs) I'm like the curls keep me a little younger so sure political statement but also just you know vanity. yeah vanity (laughs) trying to peel back the turn back the clock Los Angeles is trash everyone cares about how old you are all the time so
2: as i went to la going oh i've turned 40 well will they notice me no one <laughs> i can't get served in a bar what's happening um so i think
1: do you feel like comedy can be a good positive force for social change absolutely yeah i think when people are laughing they're more likely to listen than when they're being berated so i think you have the biggest chance of moving people who are in the middle of an issue maybe you don't have that big of a chance to move the people who are staunchly to either side but the people in the middle who just haven't taken the time to think about it if you get them laughing about it and seeing things from your perspective and they like you and find you charming 100 percent. i have people tweet at me all the time um because i do a podcast about racism but it's funny and the title is yo is this racist so it can be a little like abrasive and jarring i'm doing it for the uh podcast fest this weekend and the customs officer do you call them customs border patrol uh, oh, yeah, we call them, um, we call them,
2: cu- yeah, customs is normally what goods and products you bring in. Oh, imm- I guess we call them immigration. immigration,
1: immigration. Yeah. We call them the same thing. I don't know why I mix those <laughs> up. <laughs> the immigration guy, like read the title of, cause I had like the invitation letter from the venue and he's like, yo, is this racist? And he's like, Ooh, he kind of shuddered. And he goes, that's quite a title. I'm like, right. It puts people on their heels right away. So just because the idea of talking about racism scares people. So to talk about it in a funny way, it, I've had so many, I've had like people identifying as like, I'm just an old white lady from North Carolina and you just make me think so differently about the world. <laughs> And it's so adorable to me. Well, that was one of the questions I'm
2: glad you've answered that I was going to ask you. Have you ever received those sort of emails or, you know, letters from people? And letters, I mean, we're not in a letter writing time anymore. No, sometimes but- <laughs> a dove comes through my window and drops a little. <laughs> Carry a pigeon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when you get those messages back from an audience going, you change my mind about a thing. And I think, I always think there should be a really open dialogue around race, not debating racism. That's what I think was really great about your podcast is that you are inviting discussion about it mm. you if you allow people space to talk about the small things then we can get better at tackling the huge awful things and the huge awful thing is Steve Bannon and the rise of fascism <laughs> and you, you know the alt-right and Nazism but if you give someone a lady from North Carolina a platform to kind of go I sometimes there's a girl who works in my local shop and I sometimes refer to her this way is that okay no it's not but the fact that you ask the question means yeah that you're open or willing to change.
1: Yeah, and sometimes, well, thank you for saying that I'm part of the fight against Steve Bannon. That's all I want uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyone to put across the front of my playbill or something, <laughs> they said. Um, but yeah, I think it. Um, it also just racism can be very very serious and very scary it can also be very silly and very just like awkward as someone who's grown up experiencing it not every moment of racial insensitivity that happened to me over my life was a devastating tear-filled event sometimes it was two toothless men in a pickup truck trying to shout the n-word at me but like they didn't really they weren't able to form their consonants super well so <laughs> that's kind of it's it sucks but it's You're also, no teeth have trip you up <laughs> so i'm kind of like there are we have to be able to take some of the sting and edge off of it so that we can talk about it the way that people of color talk about it you know like so but white people don't have that because they're either so like liberal and on the right side of things that they're scared of ever being racist um which is good you should be scared but like you should be able to talk about
2: yeah i describe the people that are like that as so woke they're almost insomniac
0: (laughs) (laughs) never sleep (laughs) red-eyed
2: yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, we had a comic here who does a character called Jonathan Pye, or Tom Walker, who went on Channel Four News and went, you know, it's free speech issue. People should be allowed to say their racist views so we can challenge them. And then people rightfully came back and went, "Yeah, for you as a white man to say that is okay, but mm-hmm. you're not on the receiving end of a lifetime right. of this." So there has to be a certain level of the conversation where you kind of go, "This just isn't even up. My humanity is not up for debate." Mm -hmm. I'm a human. So work from there.
1: Yeah, let's start there. (laughs) It's also not, you know, freedom of speech gets thrown around in the US too. And, you know, white people love to stand on the constitution and first amendment rights, freedom of speech. But it's often, it's not the government or, you know, some on high governmental power telling a comedian not to say this. It's usually just like, Me on Twitter or like some people who run a comedy festival. Like these are private people or private organizations that say we don't want this. So that's not shutting down your freedom of speech. That's people who are more enlightened than you saying you suck. So just like you're not being uh, censored. You're being told to. Challenged. Yeah, you're being challenged. You're allowed to say it and people are allowed to disagree with it. Yeah, and people are allowed to say I don't want you at my festival because I'm a weird private improv festival or whatever,
2: you know. We had a, a thing here with a comedian who just won an award, and a review site. Um, he tweeted going, "Fun fact: first person of color to it," and everyone was like, "Is that a fun fact? What are you doing?" Yeah. So they and he was kind of like, oh, "It's meant as a joke and it's meant as ironic," and then it got really different.
0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
2: About it. People like, no, just listen when people tell you. That's not a cool thing to say. Yeah. As a, you know, old white
1: dude. Yeah, that's not a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: so, yeah. Do you find comedy to be a f- form of therapy as well as a force for change? Do you get therapeutic things out of,
1: hmm.
2: you know, doing what you do?
1: Probably because I tend to... I'm lucky and also very strategic in that I don't work with very many assholes, hardly any. I pretty much, if I can control it, I don't work with any assholes. So. If you've got asshole dar. Oh uh, yeah, I do very, <laughs> very easily. There are some people in my immediate circle, you know, in kind of this like podcasty alternative scene that I know to just stay completely away from. Um, and so, yeah, it is therapeutic because you're often being very fun and funny with like-minded people about topics. That, and I'm also I have a kind of a reputation for not doing any comedy that's sort of beneath us right. <laughs> in terms of like, you know, gender stuff or LGBT issues or whatever. So no one kind of tests me on that, which I don't know if I'm lucky or if people are well, that's just in- getting smarter. I don't know.
2: Interesting thing within improv, because you can, you can stand and speak for yourself within the group, but you can't predict what someone mm. else is going to say or do. Or how you respond to that. Have you ever had to police anyone in in the midst of a sketch or a
1: scene? Yeah, and you know, I do... It's funny, I do believe, especially in improv... I believe there needs to be a certain freedom. So I am less hard on people that say somewhat insensitive things in improv than I am for stand-ups. Because I'm like, you had to sit down and write that. You decided over and over that this is the joke you wanted to make. Sometimes in improv, I've said things that I then go back and go, oh, that was a little, like, I didn't need to go that far. Sometimes you're just reaching for a joke. You're a little desperate. Also, where I came up in improv there wasn't this idea that very many people were looking at us because Chicago, while it's the birthplace of improv, the market is small, you know, nothing's being recorded and broadcast or listened to later. So your joke is for those 200 people and then it kind of disappears. And then the next night you can say like, ooh, I don't want to talk about things like that. So I I have a little more empathy for that. But what I do make sure of on stage is to, within the confines of the scene and as the character, make my point of view heard. So I, I would never stop a scene and be like, don't say a slur, but I might then in the next scene, in character. Oh yeah. Or in the next scene, become that person that they were talking about or something right. and give like a very, <laughs> what I think is a very nuanced kind of a kind of troll them a little bit, you know, and the audience knows exactly what you're doing and they're instantly on your side. Cause you didn't berate them again. What you did instead was say, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to make you guys laugh rather than like nagging someone on stage Yeah, or yeah. on a podcast or something. Mm -hmm. I was talking about this on an earlier podcast. I won't delve into it
2: too much, but we were talking about the response to something like Nanette Mm -hmm. in America, that there were some people that were very angry that that existed. (laughs) And you go, you know, that can exist. And also whatever you do can exist as well.
1: Yeah.
2: You know? um, And if there's an audience for it, people will go, I suppose.
1: Especially with all these streaming channels, like nothing is anything anymore. There's so many, there's so many channels. There's so many podcasts. You can have your incredibly niche Whatever you want to listen to, whatever you want to see is there for you. So to get mad about the female reboot of Ghostbusters or Nanette or <laughs> it's like, go watch something fucking else. There's 3,000 things for you at any moment. Oh, the amount of
2: upset, like... <laughs> Triggered men by like the Ghostbusters thing. They were like, "You can't." What are they even going to do? Like, how are they going to wear the backpacks? Are uh, they going to look stupid? Like, that was one of the on IMDb. There was a message board. Honestly, how will they wear backpacks? Is maybe the funniest. <laughs> I've heard about. How, how, what's going to happen? Like, yeah, people having their childhood ruined. And again, with that, you go. You know, it's still gonna, the original will still exist, and no one is stopping mm-hmm. you from going and revisiting that original film. You can watch it every day bro. <laughs> I took my stepson. I love that. He, he was really into it and he just doesn't think anything about the fact that they're women. And that's really, right. you know, occasionally that a conversation will come up about equal pay or something. And, uh, I was like, you know, you know, your mom and, uh, and me, sometimes we can get paid less because, and he was like, that's so unfair. Like, cause the kids now, <laughs> like he's so angry at the idea of it. And I love that. Yeah. Cause I just don't know if the conversations were around when we were kids like that.
1: Maybe not because they, our parents didn't really know to, you know, my mom was a, uh, my mom was a prison guard, like a prison officer. And so I grew up knowing that women could do that job because I saw her go and do it every day. But my friends, when I would say my mom's a prison guard, they'd be like, at like a women's prison. And I was like, no, at a male prison, women do that job. But how how would they know that? Yeah. I only knew it because I watched her go do it. Um, I liked what you said, though, about um, your stepson not knowing it. He didn't care that they were women because he didn't know any different. That made me think of, like, when I was a kid watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I didn't care that they were turtles. I just thought, like, this is a cool, like, action movie that I want to be a part of. So I feel like um, uh, the comic Camille Nanjiani had a really good statement last year during the Oscars where he said, he didn't say it on stage, it was part of, like, a filmed piece. Um, the Academy Awards, where people were talking about representation. And he said, you know, for any of the, like, white people or men or whoever feels challenged by all this, quote, diversity in Hollywood, thinking that they don't get to identify with the films anymore, um, Camille said something to the effect of, like, they definitely can identify with women or with people of color in these leading roles if they're not that just as I, a Pakistani man, was able to identify with white men my whole childhood, my whole life. You, yeah, like you can do it. It's it's fine. It's
2: good writing. Yeah, good writing and good performances means you will connect with those characters. Yeah, irrelevant of whether you see yourself in them.
1: I thought I was E. T. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sure. I'm small. I like bikes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like
2: phoning home. It's Why? all happening. Why not? Um, yeah, well, like the Karate Kid. Yeah, like I remember watching that and like. I fancied Daniel a little bit but I also wanted to be
1: Daniel I also wanted to do the karate it's very confusing for girls like us because we want to be the action hero but then we're also like attracted to the action hero
2: (sighs) I was just thinking this about Top Gun the other day because I was like I love it so much but then I was like but also I want to be Maverick (laughs) I want Maverick to be in me.
1: <laughs> and I want to be him. I want to be Maverick. What am I? Will I stay alone forever? Am I a narcissist? <laughs>
2: but um, Have you ever found any challenges with blending the political and personal in your work?
1: Ooh, no. Um, I mean, other than sometimes audiences are bored of it and don't want to hear about the political, but I usually win them over. I think I'm good at reading a room, you know, doing improv. I think I'm good at um, saying my political piece or whatever, but still always wrapping it
2: in a joke. Do you think there's Trump fatigue is probably quite a good question to ask of American audiences now. Do you think just even the act of like talking about him makes people go, uh, cause we sort of had that here with Brexit a little bit. It got yeah. to a point where just bringing it up, everyone sort of went, Ugh. and there was a point where you couldn't not talk about it.
1: Yeah, I do think, yeah, I definitely think there's Trump fatigue. I also think that like What's being, what needs to be said about him and the atrocities he's committing, are covered by um, so many of our other fantastic podcasts. I th- I'm thinking of the ones on Crooked Media, you know, Pod Save America, um, uh, Trap House, mm-hmm. Keep It, um, Daily Zeitgeist is another great one on the House Stuff Works Network, Culture Kings. Uh, Although they don't really talk about Trump. But I just think like, I try to remember to kind of stay in my lane of like, we have enough to deal with, with like racism news, diversity news, questions from callers that for me to just go off on a tirade about Trump would be a bit fatiguing for people. So I don't necessarily need to unless it intersects with what we're talking about. I do though think that there is a renewed, I shouldn't say renewed because I don't know that it was ever there. There is a new and sudden and very convenient interest in what black women especially have to say. So I'm suddenly getting lots of invitations to things in the U.S. People are like, please come sit on our panel. Please come be in our thing. Because we overwhelmingly, 94% of us, did not vote for Donald Trump. We're the largest demographic group across party lines, across everything, that said absolutely not. And it's like suddenly they went, you guys are the sage wisdom. You're the prophets. We didn't know. We've never been listening to you this whole time. You've been the most discounted large group of people in the country you get paid the least yet you knew to try and prevent this man so now especially people are like looking to us for our answers whereas like some of us are just like comedians and podcasters and it's like i'm not really trying to run for office bro i just like i knew trouble when i saw it frankly yeah
2: yeah as a, a member
1: of society whose voice isn't being heard mm-hmm. um and as someone who has never had a candidate that truly represented us. I love Barack Obama, but he's still a man. And there were still things about him that I didn't find progressive enough. I, I, I'm crying even saying that because I loved him so much. Of course, of course. course, there of course yeah. no, one, no one's a perfect candidate, but also... There's never
2: been a woman here who's represented me, But the, although there've been ones that look like me that are white women, but I sure. disagree with so politically.
1: <laughs> and also, like as black women, we have been the most... We have had to be the most self preservationist Like, we've had to take such good care of ourselves and we're so underpaid and overworked and discounted. And the more educated you get as a black woman, it's proved that the more likely you are to stay single because educated black women are not as valued as educated white women are. It's just a—I feel like we're just in this tiny trough. So we vote in a way that protects the most— Uh, sensitive and um, endangered in a way. Of your, the most vulnerable parts of your society. Yes. Because it includes us, even though we tend to like be very educated and very, you know, so yeah, I think we tend to vote to protect like people like immigrants and things like that. I remember seeing a Maya Angelou um, quote,
2: uh, not, actually it wasn't a quote, she was being interviewed for a TV show and she spoke about black women and she was like we're just the last we're counted the least people don't care if they hurt us people don't care what they say about us they don't care about our opinions and also they haven't been given the voice or the have the light shine shine on them in terms of feminism um and in those other ways so we were talking about a lot of the grassroots of feminist movement especially in the states as well mm-hmm. you know we're, we're coming through black women and mm-hmm. And, uh, and then obviously people like Gloria Steinem came out of the movement and kind of, but she was very aware of it, I guess, and she spoke about it. But um, the only reason I bring it up is because my friend in the earlier podcast, and again, I do think it's, it's probably pertinent for us to talk about. She was like, how do you feel about white feminism and the phrase white feminism? And I was like, <laughs> it can feel a bit hurtful, but it is probably good to look around and see where your, your um, blind spots are. But at the same oh, yeah. time to be used as a term that is, Per, like Pejorative. Per, yeah yeah I suppose because you go I'd like to think that I'm inclusive and I like I don't mind my blind spots being sh being shown to me but then Mm -hmm. also at the same time within a movement anything that kind of like separates to kind Mm -hmm. of go black feminism white feminism I know the problems are different Mm -hmm. and everyone's oppression is unique and that's what intersexual feminism believes but it's sort of interesting is that a big thing in America at the moment do you think?
1: It very much is and I tend to think that Because black
2: women didn't vote for Trump and white women did but (laughs) maybe not white feminist women
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You'd be surprised I mean 53% of white women voted for Trump so you're going to tell me that 53% of American women, white women don't identify as feminists. Yeah. I don't know what the Venn diagrams are on that, but I, that math doesn't work out. Right. Um, you right. know, so someone yeah. claiming to be a feminist still voted for him. Um, I think that no one would obviously label themselves a white feminist, <laughs> but I think I only use it ever when I'm talking about the types of feminists that kind of do that, like, well we're all equal we have to work for women's rights first you know there's kind of this idea that like women have to get there first then we can deal with everybody's individual whereas what you're talking about is an awareness of intersectionality that needs to work for the most vulnerable of us at the same time
2: yeah where we elevate yeah yeah we there's a median and there's a middle that some people aren't hitting. So your, your awareness of where you're talking from the problem. I also feel it like in terms of classism here, which I think is different in the, in the States, Mm. but as a working class woman, Mm -hmm. there are women. I often feel that feminism lets down working class women broadly. That's across color that is just, you know, like the feminist movement in the UK can sometimes feel like it is very much for a specific type of rich home counties, like <laughs> sort of white woman because they're the main voices of it, or they have the background and the schooling and the platform and everything else. Yeah. But then I also feel like within that movement, do I want to attack those women because I feel like they're not the ones that I'm trying to fight. So it's such a, it's such an interesting thing to know that that is a,
1: it's a huge thing in America. I'm kind of seeing it a bit more here now. I have a question for you. Mm. Someone, uh, a friend of mine who grew up here told me that the reason they love America is because in the UK and these are her words paraphrased in the US whether you're born poor or born rich you can it, become president yeah or, or you can become rich and you can be seen with as much class and clout even if you were born poor whereas that's not necessarily true here yeah I'll give you a perfect example I
2: watched a video the other day about Cardi B, because obviously there was this Cardi B Nicki Minaj beef. And I haven't been, I've, I obviously saw Bodak Yellow and I've seen a couple of interviews with Cardi. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Bacardi, Bacardi actually said that was her nickname. There's something really endearing and cute. And yeah. then I'm watching things, I'm watching like the argument trying to work out, like, do I have a side in this beef, or do I just have to watch the beef play out? Mm-hmm. But I saw this video where it said Cardi B finessed her way from from being a stripper and being homeless to a millionaire rapper, and I was like, it it almost made me want to cry because that because the American t- like the word finesse mm. I was like here you're just not allowed it. Like if you are from a poor background, if you make mistakes, if you whatever you've done in your career, it just wouldn't be described as finessing. Mm. like in America they were like she's the dream yeah she's come from that and look where she is now and we will celebrate that whereas here they go don't ever think you're better than us don't ever <sighs> think that. and that's why it almost maybe just the word finesse they went yeah. look how you did that not How the fuck did you wangle that? Everyone thinks you're a piece of shit. You're a scumbag. (laughs) Which I feel like is what happens here a lot. Like it's a little bit like you've done all right for yourself. And then when you get to a certain level, there's a tall poppy syndrome where we go, we take that away from you. Don't ever think you're better than us. Know your place. There's a lot of know your place in the UK. Whereas in America, that is true. That You can come from...
1: Whereas here, you can get as far as your class will allow you to get. Yeah. So you don't have these rags to riches stories, these fantasies like we do. We, Unless it's about marrying into the royal family, right? We,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. She's living in a real life version of Get Out. It's yeah, right. <laughs> And she earned so much more doing suits. Like her salary as an actress, I, I could guess it probably pretty close. And it's yeah. so much more money than she has now. Yeah. I mean, and she still has it. But yeah. And that's
2: how you know it's true love as well. You go, I'm willing to sacrifice these things <laughs> for for you and I think um so I think in some ways that kind of shows how progressive the new generation of royals are not that it's progressive to date someone outside of your race but here it's seen as that it's better it's better we'll take what we can get you know and you did tell me about the the people emailing in for the podcast but have you Mm. ever received anything like sort of personally like, again, along those lines of, you know, someone who's watched you and gone, oh, you spoke about this thing and that meant a lot to me.
1: Yeah, I get um I get like Instagram messages and Twitter messages from um like a lot of mixed girls. And I don't often say that I'm mixed. I prefer to identify as black just because. I was always taught it's the one drop rule in America. If you have one drop of black blood, you're black. That's it. So, um, but I know a lot of like younger generations, especially like to say biracial and mixed. So, um, I'm fully supportive of the term. I just didn't grow up with it. Um, so I get a lot of girls like that, that email me and say like, I want to do comedy. I live in the middle of Ohio. I'm the only Brown person at all. And like, nobody gets my sense of humor and, you know, they just feel like, Because I hear and see you doing it, I feel like I can do it. And then I also really love the people that aren't um, trying to be comedians, kind of what I was talking about earlier, that are just like, this is exciting to hear someone who reminds me of my mom or my friend, You know, just more of a community, especially for people who don't live around other people that look like them. It's very heartwarming. I I love it so much. I, I do also get girls that are just like, thank you for wearing your hair like that. And that, too, I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm not really doing anything except just not blow-drying my hair anymore. It's, like, really a laziness thing.
2: (laughs) Oh, I read an interesting piece, actually. We can finish on this final one, actually. I read a really interesting piece about... um, Jack Horseman mm. which I love but there was a whole thing about within that it all being white voices mm. in spite of them having characters that were like like Diane who's Vietnamese and stuff like that mm-hmm. do you find that there's still barriers there that are that need to be broken down or that that
1: needs like a lot of change you as yeah. someone who does quite a lot of voice work yeah, I think that um that's a confusing conversation for people in Hollywood right now uh, I know how I feel about it I'm like oh well if you want a brown character or a character of this ethnicity go find that person because they can bring more not because like they're the only ones allowed to make the accent or whatever more just that like if you're writing a vietnamese character i bet uh, a vietnamese actor will be able to bring especially stuff. add stuff because in all this comedy all the people who make bojack are great this is more for like future people yeah. making stuff um it's, it's all kind of improv anyway like no one's really locked to the script so don't you want someone with that point of view to be able to add shit to it i would um in that vein i just did an episode of big mouth um you know nick kroll's show yes it's so funny it's so great and he has some white people playing voices of brown people and it didn't like offend me i was more just like well i guess i'm glad that you like wanted to include a brown face in your cartoon because so many times people make cartoons and everyone's just white and it's like why you have the whole crayon box (laughs) you can make whatever color you want But yeah, so I think with animation, it's like, like you're saying, have enough voices in the room. And most of them do. Actually, Big Mouth does a good job. Their writing staff is very diverse. Well, the BoJack piece was great because he was
2: saying he was sort of aware of it. And then he tried to make a change. And he said it sort of happened without even thinking that we ended up with this kind of all white cast. And then obviously, um, uh, Hari Kondabalu did Mm -hmm. um, this big kind of... The film about the, Sims, film. the problem with the poo and stuff, yeah. and it, yeah, it was that kind of it was such a huge discussion in in America. So I kind of watched that with 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 interest to kind of see how people how people felt about it. We need a little nudge just to get. I think people speaking up enough. I think in the state, obviously, the industry is much huger. So I feel here like as well. I feel I feel like I'm constantly shouting, and then I go, <laughs> I don't have to do all of the fights, but if I do some of the fight yeah and then some other people do some of it as well if we all do a little bit mm-hmm. to try and change things then yeah. eventually they'll change
1: i think that's great and i also think that you doing some of the shouting takes pressure off of maybe some of the brown women around you who don't want to do the shouting like i want to shout but yeah. there are you know people of color who don't need to but often the burden is on us the same way that i try to shout a lot for um lgbt issues because i'm straight and cis so i i don't want them to always have to i feel like those of us with just an inch more privilege just need to reach down and like help pull the people up behind us and then we'll all climb the i don't know what are we climbing a steep ladder i guess a mountain a mountain yeah. <laughs> yes. help
2: me up the mountain motherfucker you're at yeah. the top you're at the top <laughs> the reach top. a handbag
1: i'm struggling too i know we all are but like let's do this together <laughs> yeah thank you so much for coming
2: on the podcast
0: uh it's been really Also from Lush Podcast, the John Robb Tapes. Punk legend John Robb digs through his cassette tapes to bring you exclusive interviews with other musical icons. Some are from The Vault and some are brand spanking new. Find the John Robb Tapes wherever you find podcasts and on The Lush Player. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.